Let us pray. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the year 1900, Antoine-Marie Jean-Baptiste Roger was born in France into a noble and aristocratic family. He grew up in a beautiful chateau, uh, but he had a very unhappy childhood and youth because for him he found that there seemed to be absolutely nothing that he was good at. He was no good at sports, he was no good at noble pursuits like equitation and hunting, and he was no good in school. So when he got to high school, he thought maybe it would get better, but unfortunately he failed out of high school. He had a family friend pull strings to get him into college, and then he failed out of college. He had another family friend pull strings to get him into naval school, but he failed out of naval school as well. As a last resort, he decided to get a family friend to pull strings and get him into architecture school, where he found, as he said, that I had about as much aptitude for architecture as dentistry and couldn't tell them apart. So at the age of 21, he thought he was doomed to be a failure that he did not know what he was made for, he did not know his purpose, he did not experience joy in his life. And since it was 1921, it was the beginning of the days of aviation. And so he thought, well, maybe I could get a pilot's license and work at fairs taking people up in the sky for a few minutes. So he got his pilot's license and actually passed. And as he did that, when he took his first flight into the air, his world was forever changed. He loved it, he was good at it, and before long, when he was 22, he had gotten a job with Aeropostale, which was one of the first long-haul mail routes where he was flying from France to Dakar, to Morocco, to Rio de Janeiro, to Patagonia, to Buenos Aires and he loved it, and he found this whole new reality, a reality that had always been there, but he had only seen it from afar and certainly had never appreciated it. He wrote these words about what it was like to be in the air. The villages are lighting up, constellations that greet each other across the dusk, and at the touch of a finger, flying lights flash back a greeting to them. The earth grows spangled with light signals as each house lights like a star, searching the vastness of the night as a lighthouse sweeps the sea. Now every place that shelters human life was sparkling, and it rejoiced me to enter into this night with a measured slowness as into an anchorage. He was now a man enlightened, a man transformed on fire because of this new reality that flying had opened up for him, a, a reality that had always been there, but he had never embraced it. But this man not only enjoyed this experience of flying, but he went on to become a heroic pilot known for his deeds in the World War II, but more known as a famous author the most decorated author in all of French literature, who later took on the name of his family nobility and became known to the world as Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And he is most famous for his children's book, The Little Prince. 
And in that book, I think he must have been reading Ephesians because in that book, he says this, here is my secret, a very simple secret. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. The eyes are blind. One must look with the heart. My friends, as we come to this great All Saints Day reading from the epistle to the Ephesians, we see that just like Saint Exupéry, we live in a meaningless and flat world until the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. And when our eyes are enlightened through the eyes of our hearts, as Saint Paul describes, the reality that Christ has already accomplished for us becomes something into which we can live each day in a way that transforms our lives. All too often, we are blinded by the tide of this world that washes over us and washes away our true identities as Christians, as sons and daughters of God, washing away our understanding of the joy that we are meant for living into this kingdom of God, that what Jesus has prepared for his saints. And in Ephesians and throughout the New Testament, the saints of God are the people who belong to Jesus Christ and believe in him. Every person, not just those great saints, but all of us gathered here this morning are part of that great company of saints that we celebrate in this great feast day of the church. But the problem for many of us is that although we are saints, we don't live into that. We live more into what our world tells us, that it is a time of anxiety, it is a time of despair, it is a time without meaning and purpose. But if we will get a hold of what St. Paul is talking about today, it will transform us. The problem with us is that we are far too easily satisfied and we settle for far less than what God intends for us. C.S. Lewis once said memorably that our desires are found by God not to be too strong, but to be too weak. That we fool around with things like sex and drink and ambition. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with these things when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seashore. My friends, as we look today at this passage from Ephesians, my prayer for all of us is that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened, because if we can get hold of this perspective and this truth, it will change and transform our lives forever. So let's look at this passage. It's in your service leaflet, and I would commend to you to follow along with me. So first, a little context about Ephesians. John Stott, the great English evangelist and scholar and priest, says that one of the chief blind spots of Christians today is that we tend to proclaim an individual salvation without moving on to the saved community of God's people, of the saints of God. He puts it this way, nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Ephesians with a privatized gospel. Ephesians sets forth God's eternal purpose to create through Jesus Christ a new people who stand out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. For God's new society is characterized by life in place of death, by unity and reconciliation in place of division and alienation, by wholesome standards of righteousness in place of the corruption of wickedness, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife, 
and by unremitting conflict with evil in place of a flabby compromise with it. Ephesians is a book that will change your life, and if you've never read the whole thing, I would commend to you sometime this week to sit down and read the whole book. It will change your perspective. And there are so many great Christians through history who have been touched by Ephesians. My favorite story is that of John McKay, who was the president of Princeton Theological Seminary. And in 1903, at the age of 14, he was up in the the Scottish Highlands. And while he was there, he said that he had this moment of boyish rapture. And that to Ephesians, he said, to this book, I owe my life. I saw a whole new world, everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes toward others. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. Now this first chapter of Ephesians is broken into two parts. The first part, which we don't have, verses one through 14, is one long sentence. And it's one long sentence of praise to God for how absolutely amazing he is and for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Paul says in this part that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Try to get your head around that. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And notice that St. Paul uses the past tense. This has all been accomplished by Jesus through his death and resurrection, and it is a present reality if we will only understand it. So Paul goes on to say that he has heard of the great faith and the great love of the Ephesians. And this is part of the precondition for having the eyes of your heart opened, to be in relationship with Jesus Christ, to have that faith and to be loving and in relationships of love with those who are around you, that whole body of the saints. And he prays for these people. And he prays not that they would have some kind of second spiritual blessing or something new would happen to them, but rather that they would appreciate to the fullest extent possible what had already been done for them by Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. The essence of his prayer for them is that they would know these things by having their hearts be enlightened. And let me say here that enlightenment is a word when we hear it in our culture that we usually think of Buddhist enlightenment. Buddhist enlightenment could not be more different than what Paul is talking about. Buddhist enlightenment is letting go of everything, a self-emptying so that there is nothing left, so that there is an absence of any anxiety or worry or anything at all and a reduction to nothing. The enlightenment that Paul is talking about is a fullness. It is a fullness that is full of all of the fullness of God with joy and beauty and truth and goodness. And when Paul talks about knowledge here, he's talking about it in two forms. Knowledge that is understanding, that is understanding with your mind and appreciating all the aspects of, but he's also talking about the knowledge that comes with experience. Just like we saw with Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, he knew about the stars and the sky, and he knew about airplanes, but until he actually experienced them and saw the glory and the wonder of the night sky, he was not transformed by them, even though they were equally true before he had embraced them. 
So Paul's confidence in his prayer is because of his confidence in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to open people's hearts and minds to these truths. So Paul brings together three great truths in this prayer that he's praying for them, that we should pray for ourselves, and that we should pray for our brothers and sisters. Because if we grasp these three things, they will change our lives forever. The first thing that he prays that we would know is the hope of God's call to us. The second is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And the third is his immeasurable power that is revealed toward us who believe the same power that raised Christ from the dead. So firstly, the hope of God's call. That is a beautiful phrase just in itself because we live perhaps in one of the most hopeless times in the modern world. We are surrounded by people who say they have no hope where anxiety and depression and despair are at record levels. And the very idea of having hope is a radical thing. And yet, that is what we are told we have because of who Christ is and what he did for us. The question is, what did God call us for? And the answer is that he called us to something and he called us for something. He has called us to belong to Jesus Christ. To remember that Jesus died on the cross because of his love for each one of us individually and that we belong to him. Our identity is centered in him and we are his and part of his kingdom. And then he has called us for being part of the fellowship of the saints, being part of that great body of the church, the church militant, which is here on earth, the church triumphant, the saints that have gone on before. We are made part of that company. We are initiated into that call. And it is a beautiful call that is full of hope and points us beyond our present suffering and anxieties to a reality that is unchangeable. This is radical because today, being a person of hope stands out against the world. Just as John Stott said in that earlier quotation, we stand out like something technicolor in a black and white world. It reminds me of that great passage in Philippians where Paul says that when we do everything without arguing or complaining, when we live as people of hope, we will shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as we hold out the word of life. So we are called to have hope. Secondly, we are called to know, to know and to understand and to experience the glory of God's inheritance. Now this at first may seem to us as good Southerners somewhat unseemly. Even if you're from a wealthy family, it's not polite to talk about the prospects that you may have for future wealth when the right people in your family die off. It's sort of like in the parable of the prodigal son where it is shocking when the young man comes to his father and says, divide the inheritance between me and my brother because it's basically saying, I wish you were dead. But what actually is happening here is we are called to rejoice and the inheritance that we have received. To receive and inherit someone has to die, but Jesus has done that on our behalf and he has been raised to new life. And that inheritance that we have is sure and certain. It is waiting for us and it is part of what we can access now. It is not presumptuous to think about it. On the contrary, 
Paul prays not only that we may know it, but that we may glory in this inheritance that waits for us. It is far greater than anything we can ask or imagine. It is that beautiful vision in Revelation 21 of the new heaven and the new earth coming down, that place where all will be made right, the nations will be healed, where we will gaze upon the face of Jesus and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. It is a glorious inheritance that awaits us and one that we should rejoice in. Thirdly, Paul prays that we may know, understand mentally and experientially the greatness of God's power. For only God's power can equip us to live in this way in the midst of a generation that is not seeking after the Lord. But this is no small power. This is not just our own willpower. It's not even the power of a Marvel comic superhero. This is a power where the Greek word is the same root word as our word dynamite. It is the power that not only called out of nothingness all that is the whole creation, but it is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and brought him to the right hand of the Father where he sets and subdues all things under his feet. It is amazing that this power is available to us. So Paul prays that we will have this hope and this call that God has on our lives. He prays that we will understand the glorious inheritance that he has given to us. And thirdly, he prays that we will know the greatness of God's power to us who believe. So in conclusion, the whole thrust of this prayer is that we would have a thorough knowledge of God's call, inheritance, and power. But you may ask, how does he actually expect this prayer to be answered? How do you and I today, in this place in Charleston in 2022, grow in this kind of understanding and enlightenment? And the answer is by doing what Paul does, praying that our hearts would be enlightened. We pray for so many things. If you're like me, too often your prayer life descends to the level of God bless Aunt Susie, amen. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Aunt Susie probably needs God's blessing. But there is much more to prayer than that. And Paul shows us here a beautiful way to pray. And God wants to give us these things more than we even want to obtain them. It is also a great thing to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, another thing that can help us is to lean into the truth, beauty, and goodness of the kingdom of God by thinking on those things that are excellent, true, beautiful, worthy of praise. And of course, the chief of those is scripture, Jesus Christ himself, the worship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we lean into these things, we get a glimpse of that kingdom, just as we did in singing that great hymn for all the saints as we came in this morning. We get a glimpse of what is stored up for us. God longs to give us this knowledge. Remember that Jesus himself says in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, as saints of God, we have entered into eternal life even now when we are in relationship with Jesus. And there is joy in that. J.I. Packer talks about this, saying the gospel is about knowing and being known, not about doing and getting done. What matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact 
that he knows me. So in Ephesians, we see that the saints are characterized by great faith and great love. And that idea of the saints together practicing faith and sharing love is so important as the bedrock of the understanding of what the church is. The great scholar James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, at the center of all this in Ephesians, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. The church is to be a transforming power in the world, not by weapons, not by force, not by marches, protests, or politics, but by transformed lives. Lives that are full of these things to which Paul calls us today. It all comes back to knowing and being known by Jesus Christ. In Christ, we can know God and be known by God. We can have a living hope, we can have immeasurable riches, and we can have transforming power. We are reminded of this in the great other hymn for all saints. I sing a song of the saints of God, that this is meant for all of us. I sing a song of the saints of God, faithful and brave and true, who toiled and fought and lived and died for the Lord they loved and knew. For the saints of God are just folk like me, and I mean to be one too. Amen.